Well, today, let's talk about um, union with Christ and union with Christ being really the sum and substance of, of the gospel. Everything you want to say, um, when, you, when you think about salvation, maybe we could say it like this. If you think about salvation as this multifaceted gem, whereas you, you, know, you, you turn that gem and you let the light refract on one facet, say justification, you turn again, sanctification, you turn again, adoption, turn again, election, all of these wonderful things that together, you know, we're talking about salvation, they're all rooted in union with Jesus Christ. And it's actually, as soon as you, as soon as you, as soon as you get out of, of that, you know, in Christness, uh, that's so prominent in scripture, boy, not, you, you have, you have a, you have a mess. So, um, let's do that. Look, I just want to show you this. Maybe I talked about it right at the end last time. I got this, I just couldn't help myself. I took it from the cover of a children's, uh, uh, like a, like a, a youth um, teaching manual. And I thought, goodness gracious, no, no malfeasance there, right? But they're heading out of, away from death, not able to so much as look at our Lord and our Lord's acting the travel guide, right? Life, that, that by the way, that commodity, that thing, life is in a person here. Life is a thing, and the, the, the one who is person is saying, I'll tell you where you can find, where you can reach that destination. I'm the agent to that destination, which is, by the way, away from me. And I thought, oh dear, <laughs> right? The power of suggestion. You, you don't want to be looking at that too much. That, that you, couldn't, you couldn't, boy, bad news. So uh, we want to say something very, very different than that. So let me pray and off we'll go. We'll do tons of Bible work today because I really want you to see this in Scripture. Holy Lord Christ, we come as you are faithful and true high priest, never failing us, ever living to make intercession for us, to bind us to yourself, and to love us as one loves their own body, nourishes and cherishes and cares for their own body, which we are to you. Would you bless us today in every spiritual blessing that your Father has given to you as the eternally beloved one? And would you um, convince us in the power of the Spirit what only you can convince us of, that we are loved as you are loved, that we are accepted as you are accepted, uh, that we are delighted in as you are delighted in, precisely because we are in you. Um, would you be near to us? Would you continue to form us in yourself? We know uh, that this is the eternal will of your Father, uh, that you would sum up all things in heaven and earth, uh, that you would make a people for yourself and remove all spot and blemish from them and cause us to shine uh, as you do uh, and radiate your glory. So would you even today continue to move us from one degree of glory to the next to um, expose and in your holy love rid us of any kind of impediment that would um, cause us to shy and turn away from you. Um, that would impede us from uh, with whole hearts following you. Uh, would you do that for us? As again, only you can. And would you teach us what it means to abide in you? As you promised never to leave and forsake us. Would you teach us to abide in you, we pray. In Christ's holy name. Amen. Um, right at the top here, the believer's union with Jesus Christ is really, when, when we're talking about salvation, and when I come back, and I'm not going to be here for a few weeks, but when I come back in April, we'll do some of those good old meaty gospel topics like justification, sanctification, what do these things mean? So this is why I want to hit this now. This is an umbrella topic. We're always actually talking about 
this. Um, it's, it's the unifying theme of anything you want to say about how God wishes to save us in Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. You might think about it like this. Well, we're always talking about union with Jesus Christ. Um, I just talked about a diamond. You can think about it like a you think about it however you want, bicycle spoke, whatever. Um, but we're talking about, when, when we do, when we talk about justification, when we talk about sanctification, adoption, it doesn't matter where any of these go, election, anything like that, we're always rooting it right here, right here in Jesus Christ. And so that means all of salvation in its whole and in all its parts means that, that it, what we're talking about is how, how, how the Father in the Son by the Spirit is is progressing and bringing to fullness all that he wills to be to us in Jesus Christ. So we're always rooting it here, okay? What that also means is when you, when you think about um, how, how you would talk about different aspects of salvation, they always find the rootedness here. Let me explain what I mean by that. Say, for instance, and gosh, you guys, if, if you read in theology, this kind of stuff happens all the time. You take, for instance, topics like justification and sanctification and you pluck them as it were from union with Jesus Christ and now you start to talk about them in isolation again in personal commodities right now you start to think how in the world do I think about this in integrated ways how does how does how does justification and sanctification go together and all those conversations get really really tough and you start having conversations like this are you a legalist or an antinomian you guys have heard those, right? Are you a free grace person or lordship salvation? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and your, or your Savior and your Lord, these types of things? It's all about what happens when, when actually these are undiscernible anymore because they're unrooted from Jesus Christ. We're trying to figure out how things go together, for instance, apart from him. They actually don't. Do we have to be incoherent? This one, for instance, election, that wonderful biblical topic. I just taught on this yesterday, and um, most people, for instance, find it to be a scary and horrible thing to talk about. Scripture only talks about election positively. It's God's eternal yes to us um, because we often think about it as unrooted from Jesus Christ. Um, it tends to be, how do you plumb the inner psyche of God, of, of the Father, apart from and around Jesus Christ? Well, you can't, <laughs> right? He says in Ephesians, um, he wishes to make his eternal will known, revealed in Jesus Christ. As soon as you uproot this, then this doctrine isn't a doctrine of comfort. It's, it's horrible. And if you have any kind of obsessive neurosis <laughs> in you, like I do, by the way, um, it'll drive you crazy. Rather than, be, rather than be just a bulwark of comfort when you're actually wounded and, and need, need it to do just that. So what we want to do is talk about um, salvation in part and whole rooted in Jesus Christ and all these different aspects that you could ever talk about rooted there, having their, their causal priority there. Does that make sense so far? I'm on the second, well, third bullet point, I guess. What I want to say here, and I want to make sure we get is we're not talking about union with Christ as some delivery system, right? Some mechanism. We're actually rooting all that God wills to be to us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So when we talk about salvation, salvation isn't something, someone, right? Jesus Christ is our salvation, like Simeon, right? 
The Lord's prolonged my days. Like Paul says in uh, what, 1 Corinthians 30, the Father has made him to be for us our, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. That one's, that one's all-inclusive. He's not the agent of these things. He's the very substance of these things. Jesus Christ is that. Once your eyes are open to this, boy, you, it's like op art, right? If you don't see it, you don't see it. But then when you see it in Scripture, it's just everywhere, right? Scripture talks about us being living members of Jesus Christ, of dying with him, of being raised with him, of participating with him, right? It is not, is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Jesus Christ. It's not the cup that we share our sharing in the very blood of Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. But <clears throat> in Scripture, this in Christ motif, it's the biggest by far. 260-some, a little bit of semantic domain there, but about 260-some. The next biggest grouping is kingdom grouping. That's in the 70s. So it's just nothing's even close. Let me show you really quickly. Uh, go, go to Ephesians 1. We do lots of Bible stuff today. <clears throat> Watch how Paul talks about this. We'll just go like Ephesians 1, 1 through 11, let's say. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, because that's the only way you can be faithful, is in Jesus Christ, the faithful one. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. What's the locus of God's blessing? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, so here we're talking about election actually. God has contemplated us before the creation of anything including time itself. God has contemplated us in Jesus Christ to bless us in the heavenly places and with every spiritual blessing to, to the fullness of time. <clears throat> now, where was I? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to the end that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. That's what I mean by semantic domain, by, by the way, right? In the beloved is in Christ, obviously. In him, six times so far in seven verses, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus Christ. The mystery of God's will isn't hidden from us, but revealed to us in Jesus Christ as he first does his will in and through Jesus Christ to us. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11 starts, in him. You see the theme? It's just every, it's everywhere in scripture. When you start, in, in Paul, it's... Um, almost up into the 200s, and then when you start to get into John's stuff, it's everywhere, and often on the lips of Jesus. I will be in you. You will be in me. You must abide in me, even as I abide in you. Father, may it be so that they're one in me, just as, just as I am in you, and you are in me. <clears throat> so this is just all, all over the place. 
Do you guys want to say anything so far? What I want to, by the way, I'm uber interruptible. Anything you want to say, I love it. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do is just walk you through a couple ways in which scripture shows this in terms of stages. And then I want to talk about some of the big characteristics of it and it's just like the, the, the pastoral payout of it, how lovely it is. <clears throat> so you see this point one here. Where does scripture start with this? You just saw it in Ephesians. We're talking about <clears throat> union with Jesus Christ in the mind of God, as it were, before anything was, including you. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, so right off the bat, we'd never want to talk about this as he chose us be merely because of him, uh, alongside of him, anything like that, or chose us and then somehow subsequently used Jesus Christ as some condition fulfillment to bring that about. None of that. Who God wishes to be to Jesus Christ, he wishes to be to us in Jesus Christ. And has eternally contemplated us as beloved ones in the beloved. Right? That, that's, where, that's where the gospel starts, actually. So, so, you know, in the fullness of time, right, born under the law, born of a woman for us and for our salvation, that's not some... Um, rescue mere rescue plan of God it's not some secondary notion it's what God is eternally purposed to do um, to and in and for us in Jesus Christ right? and it's not, nothing spastic or whimsical about God it's it's God's purpose which he will not move and be swayed from to bring to fulfillment it's just glorious I'll give you some confidence I think eh? You've been eternally contemplated as beloved in Jesus Christ and God's eternal intention for us is to pour forth the fullness of his blessing on us as he wishes to do to the eternally beloved one. Just thinking about how that undoes so much of what we hold within us from the fall of that being sent out of the garden. You know, totally. Just that feeling of like we have been sent out, we've even <clears throat> taken on the curse yeah. of suffering and yep. that just undoes all the feeling of being out and bringing us in. So, yeah, amen. So lovely. We, we have, because we have broken minds, we have a hermeneutical nightmare going on up in our, in our heads, in our hearts, because we're tempted. I, you all know this, right? We're tempted to say, deep down, sometimes I harbor this horrid feeling that God might just be a monster. Don't you? <laughs> that maybe he, he, I know he loves to be good to other people. I'm not sure he wants to be good to me and wills to be good to me, so on and so forth. It's, by the way, the primal temptation. <clears throat> what is God holding back from you? Why is it that God keeps all the best for himself? Why is it that God wants to mark off the boundaries of, of holy, full human flourishing? And why does he not let you mark those boundaries off? I mean, that's, that's the primal temptation, and we feel that every day, right? That, that's kind of telling us our narrative. This is saying just that. God actually wishes to heal our, our brokenness, even our broken minds, as he brings us into Jesus Christ, and we have and, and our very hearts and minds are renewed in the knowledge of God in the, by having the very mind of Jesus Christ. We participate in his sonship and see that God eternally wishes to be good to us. We desperately need that, <laughs> desperately so. 
So we can talk there. That's where we want to where we're going to start. We we'll start there. We can talk about <clears throat> union with Jesus Christ in terms of the incarnational realities of it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, if you work in the in the Greek, by the way, among that word there, the the koine is en. In us. You remember how Woodley said the other day at the, the, the Cana feast and they believed into Jesus Christ? There you go. There's, an, there's another instance. <clears throat> they believed into Jesus Christ by, by faith and spirit wrought faith. They're set right, right into the life and mission of Jesus Christ. Here, the same thing. It kind of dulls the meaning a little bit. It's not untrue, but it dulls the meaning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt in us. <laughs> Right? That's, that's, how, that's how John's gospel reads. <clears throat> and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Think, think Exodus 24. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass before you because you can't see my face yet. <laughs> Here we've seen it. And by, not just seen as a, you know, a, um, something we observe from afar, I will actually put my glory in you, in Jesus Christ, right? And the word dwelt in us. I will do in you all that I am, in Jesus Christ. So here, what we want to say is, what God does to bring about union with Christ first is he actually takes humanity up into the life of God, right? <clears throat> Humanity is not, a, not, a, not an attachment to God's life, but we can say amazing things here, just mind-bogglingly good things. Given the incarnation, the deity of God now and forever includes the humanity of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ has taken the cross and emblazoned it right on the heart of the Father. <laughs> you know, all of, we can say incredible things there. <clears throat> but one of the big ones is, Jesus Christ participates wholly in, in the life of humanity as God so that humans, as humans, can participate as authentic humans in the life of God. So we can say things like, Scripture says, that we're, we're real reticent to say, you're partakers of the divine nature. You're not, we're not deified. We're made authentically human. As Jesus Christ is authentically human, he partakes as human whole human in God's very life and in God's very mission. That's the basis of anything that's going to happen for us in terms of the gospel. As you know, old patristic theology would, would say time and again, this one who was son of God um, became son of man in common with us so that we can become sons and daughters of God in common with him. Right? So that as humans we can we can have a new and living way in his body, right into the very bosom of God. Then we can talk at the bottom there. I have that, that word doesn't mean much. It's just the way I talk about it, applied or realized um, union, which means this. As we, uh, in the power of the Spirit, lay hold of Jesus Christ, we're not just at a distance, right, saying, you know, Jesus, Jesus was, came among us a long, long time ago, and 
he's now distant and inaccessible to us, but I can still remember things and believe things about him in his absence. And so when I do that, God says, that's so great. I'm so proud of you that you believe true things about me. Here, let me give you this thing called salvation. We're actually laying hold of Jesus Christ and being included in him and being included in his death and resurrection. Even now, right, Paul says we're seated in the heavenlies. Of that, that stretch your, your mind and your imagination. Um, we're even now glorified, waiting for the fullness of this to be in Jesus Christ. But all that Jesus Christ is, by the way, as elect one and as sanctified one and as just one, all of these things, vindicated one, we are in him. As, as, as all he wishes to be to us, we are as we're made living members of him. So we're not receiving a commodity at a distance, we're receiving Jesus Christ in the fullness of his divine blessings given to us. <clears throat> and in this, if you turn over, what we're, we're now living in between these two resurrections, right? Our Lord's and us in him, don't forget that. And now looking for the fullness in hope, the fullness, the full manifestation of what is in truth, already and the great consummation in him we have redemption through his blood making known to us the mystery of god's will and you just saw this what's the mystery of god's will that before the foundation of the earth he wishes to include us in jesus christ and put all things under his christ bind all things in heaven and earth together and make us co-heirs with him in that according to his purpose which he set forth as a plan for the fullness of time Going on to Ephesians 2, God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. All that the Father wishes and wills to be to Jesus Christ, we will be the recipients of in Jesus Christ. It's mind-bogglingly good stuff, right? That's why Paul would say, mind is not, to what would I compare this to, right? Um, we haven't seen, or, 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 is it, or is it, are we able to fully enter in, even with our imaginations, to how glorious that is? But that makes you cry, Maranatha. This is what we're talking about, and this is the way Scripture talks about um, being in Jesus Christ. I want to I talk, if we can, about some, some of the big contours of that, and then some of the pastoral payout. Even, even something so basic as like, in light of this, how do we talk about the gospel? How do we declare Jesus Christ? <laughs> um, what does that mean for the life of the church, the in Christness? What, is it, what does it mean at the Lord's table? What is, what, is the, what is the Lord giving us at the Lord's table? This has everything to do with in Christ. And as soon as that gets shaky, <clears throat> the church, let's say, becomes something like a, a voluntary gathering of like-minded people to preserve the memory of Jesus in his distance and inaccessibility and to do to provide religious goods and services for a community and, and, and you know fulfill agendas for public good too or perceived good. The Lord's Supper becomes something very different, right? Funeral dirge. I grew up Allison, I think you I think we talked about that before. You probably grew up like that. Um, where the Lord's Supper is. Now remember, your sin caused the death of Jesus Christ. So, so sit and remember that. And in, in his absence, 
let's, let's memorialize his death and his absence. Whereas the, the great Eucharisto as Jesus Christ is risen, present in the fullness of his gifts, come, take, eat, celebrate the living Jesus Christ in his presence. Don't memorialize him in his absence. Big difference, right? Big difference. All of this is about union with Jesus Christ, what this means. So let's look at the nature, some of the big things we want to say. Union with Jesus Christ, intimate, intensely personal, profoundly real, all of those things. And, and those are all real countercultural things for us in, in at least these ways. Um, we have trouble with intimacy. Sinful people always do because we're always at one level trying to present and you know, present a kind of a polished image as we can and hide the things which we think are horrid and that even scare us, let alone anybody else. Um, and now we live in a virtual age too, right? Which we tend to think um, things that aren't real are real and things that are real aren't. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Christians talk all the time about my students, for instance, right? Um, you guys that went to Wheaton. Out in the real world, out in the real world where people are memeing about you know, celebrity gossip, where real stuff is happening, but here where we're talking about being in Jesus Christ, you know, in the, in the fantasy world, we've got it all wrong, <laughs> all wrong. This is the most real thing there is. Intensely real, in profoundly real, intensely personal. Watch, the, watch this, let's just do lots of scripture work here. Let me show you some things. John 6. <clears throat> now this is after the feeding of the multitude. And it takes a lot, people, people are traveling with Jesus. It takes a lot of courage to do that in an agrarian society because you're not, you're not farming, you're not eating, right? And so that's really something. They get fed, then the next day they're hungry. They come to Jesus and he says, um, I want to give you better food, real food, right? True food. And they're disappointed. Because in, in truth, they'd say, man, we'd settle for, you know, five guys would be really good right now. We'll settle for way less than you want to give us. Um, and in the course of time, what happens is they start to get confused. They start to get angry. And they're out. Right? But watch what our Lord does and watch how he talks about this. Let's start in verse 48. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. That's a prefiguring, of course, but it's not, the, it's not the fullness of what is to come. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and never die. I am. It's one of those great I am sayings. Not I know where to find bread. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's the deal breaker right there. Right? Like, All right, great. Oh, dear, your flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's not a bad question. It's like, it's like we don't say that, right? Like, oh, they're so dull. No, goodness gracious. Now watch what he does. He doesn't say, I'm just being provocative. I'm trying to be edgy. Let me unpack that and let me take all of, the, all of the unsettling content out of that. Come back. He doesn't do that at all. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, he ratchets it up like he often does. 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no, you can have no life in you. Now listen to how the language changes. He starts to sound like Smeagol a little bit. I mean, it's really unsettling. Whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. What he's saying is, I want, to, I want to give you an ability to discern true hunger and true drink from something else and give you true food and true drink for that. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is talking about a life of a whole different order. Right? We tend to think about life in our culture like it's... Uh, it's a right, right? I'm entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's an entitlement. Or it's something you build. You achieve a life for yourself, a good life. But however we think about that, we're talking about bios life. It's good, right? But he's talking about Zoe life. It's of a, it's of a different order altogether. You, you can't ramp up bios life enough for it to somehow transition into Zoe life. This is the life of God come down. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And they said, we're out. This is, a, this is a hard saying, right? There's an understatement, and we're out. And he turns to Peter, right? Um, are you going to leave too? It's one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. Where would I go? <laughs> I, by the way, I'm just as freaked out as they are about what you just said. Where would I go, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold fast. I'm going I'm to hold fast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn by faith. But notice this, and notice how, how intensely um, personal and unsettling it is. Jesus says, um, the nature of salvation is such that he says, I want you to take me, and I want you to put me in your mouth. And that's just, that'll make you blush a little bit, right? That's really something. I want you to chew. I want you to swallow. I want to actually enter into you, and I want my life to suffuse your very body. I want it to be a bodily reality. It's just stunning, so that my life is that which sustains you. I want, I want you to metabolize me, right? Really, really something. Do you guys want to say anything? You can say a lot about that. What we're talking about here is bodily realities, right? Um, scripture, Christian, the, the Christian gospel, Christian theology has so much to say to the world about the body. It's just mind-bogglingly good. But we're talking here about, and we will about the whole course of Scripture, the body of Jesus, the very, very real embodied Godness of Jesus, human bodies, what they are, what they're for, how they relate to the embodiment of God Almighty and Jesus Christ, and then the body, which is the church. Jesus Christ's body is the most real of all bodies. It's the body of the second person of the Trinity. It's God the Son embodied. There is no real body more real than that. All other bodies are determined, and, and, and the, the, the way in which we discern real notions of embodiment from fictional or imaginary notions of embodiment are relative to this criterion. What does what the embodiment of, of God and Jesus Christ mean? That goes for our own bodies and the body which is the church. Then you can even talk about, you know, 
other bodies, like a country, or you know, we, we, we throw around terms all the time, like we live in a global community. We don't. No, no we don't. Um, embodiment here means something so, so profoundly much more than that. If you think about, for instance, 1 Corinthians, you guys know basically how that book goes. It's, it's just a bulwark for this. Paul says to the Corinthians right off the bat in chapter 1, you're fractious. You're, right off the bat, you're having a hard time discerning the body, right? You're of Petros, you're of Paul, you're of Jesus, you're of Apollos. You're all over the place. You're into personality cults. By chapter 6, he's saying, um, you've got some real sexual unholiness going on here, incest and so on and so forth. We'll get to that text in just a minute. By 10 and 11, he's saying, and you're not discerning the body in the Eucharistic feast, right? Don't you know that the bread that we break are sharing in the body of Jesus Christ, so on and so forth? Then by chapter 15, he's saying, you know what? You're actually getting dicey on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If you don't think Jesus is raised bodily, how in the world could you ever discern the body in the Eucharistic feast? How could you ever know how to steward your bodies, chapter 6? Or how could you ever care for the wholeness and oneness of the body that is the body of Jesus Christ? All these go together. Right, that's, that's what we're talking about. It's just wonderful stuff. Yeah, that, that's about right. Yeah, like, we, I just feel like I haven't even heard about this, you know what I mean? Like, until lately. Um, I'm just making it up. Yeah. No. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, yes. So has that been interpreted differently? It is an image, right? It is a metaphor, and it's also, but there's also like... If, yes, it is, and if, if you rightly understand that. The way we tend to think about metaphor is that which isn't real. Right. Right. Yeah. Where, or a symbol, let's say. Right. Actually, what a symbol is, is that sign, and it has to remain its signness. Here's the re jazz hands, right? Mm -hmm. Symbol, reality symbol enters into the reality and gives us access to the reality without being conflated with it. So think, think about, for instance, the Lord's Supper. Think about the Eucharist. We have bread and wine. The reality, body and blood. Bread and wine remains bread and wine. Right? It remains bread and wine. Not just, right? We're not doing this. We're not conflating. Bread and wine becomes in such a way that it ceases to be bread and wine. By the way, root all of this in how you think about the, how you think about the Lord Jesus. Sacramental union is rooted in hypostatic union. Yeah. When Jesus becomes divinity, yeah. does his humanity cease to be humanity? Mm -hmm. No, there's not a conflation there. Mm -hmm. Bread and wine, remain bread and wine and give us access to, right? Mm -hmm. Access to mm -hmm. the real presence of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, what we tend to do, again, I grew up like this. Maybe you did too. We'd say, symbol? What does that have to do with anything? Right. I'll have the symbols, but, but they're empty. 
right? They don't, they don't seal anything because there's nothing there to seal. They're not, they're not pregnant, they're barren. To make us think properly. Exactly. Yep. Now think about if that's what, no, but now by the way, scripture does talk like that. By this we remember Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. The issue is that scripture thinks about remembrance in the presence of, mm-hmm. not in the absence of. God remembered Hannah at the tabernacle, right? It's not like, oh, right. God, I haven't thought about Hannah in 40 years. Oh, right. God remembers her at the place of, at the tent of meeting in his presence. He sees and remembers her. So it's not, it's not, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 is do this in remembrance of me. It needs to be interpreted in terms of 1 Corinthians 10. Don't you know that this is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus? Remember, <laughs> Right? What we tend to do as enlightenment people is remember is all up here. We're Gnostic, mm-hmm. right? Not remember, remember. Some of, the, some of the issue there is in the enlightenment, all the world gets cranialized, mm-hmm. right? It's all, it's all this. So the, the symbol of the Christian life might be this, mm-hmm. where really it's this mm-hmm. <laughs> and this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we say, we get into this weird way in which we talk about truth is subjective and, and, and objective. Right, yeah. And subjective means personal. So we say truth isn't personal, it's impersonal. Mm-hmm. There, then what we do is we say, well then the criteria of knowing truth is you have to be neutrally distant and objective about truth. Now go, go, go f- try to fit that with the gospel. It's impossible. Jesus says actually you can't know the truth unless you enter into the truth. There's, there's nothing like that. So the, what the Enlightenment did is it just um, it lobotomized us in a lot of different ways. Like That's one like reason. Of course. We read into scripture this almost everywhere. It's as if you are to eat his flesh, but you won't and you can't. It's as if you're one with Jesus, but you're not. It's as if you're seated in the heavenlies, but you're not. It's as if you're loved by God, but you're not. It's as if the one who knew no sin became sin, but he didn't so that you could become the righteousness of God. But it's only as if. None of it's real. It's as if the, the church is the body of Christ, but it's not. <laughs> you see my point? Yeah. We do that all the time. Jesus will not let us. Um, go to Ephesians 5. I want to show you this. Now, now we're here in this, this grand... Um, Jesus Christ is the second Adam with the new Eve, right? So what we, have in, what we have in Scripture, a way to put together Scripture is Scripture is about, <laughs> scripture's about food, right? God made us hungry. You guys probably read Shmemon, for the life of the world, that's how he starts. God made us hungry and put us in a garden. We're supposed to consume. It's good. Man, there's so much I want to say about that. <laughs> I, I'm going to say this. Think about things like Dracula the monsters in our culture, Pennywise, the dancing clown. They want to drink blood and they want to feed on flesh. It's not wrong. That's not why they're monsters. They're monsters because they feed on the wrong flesh. We're made to eat and drink. (laughs) 
It's, a, it's all about who you eat and drink, whether you become the image of God or a monster. That's the issue. <clears throat> Sins over food, you could say at one level, right? Jesus Christ comes and says he's true food. All, all the life of Israel is about manna and manna from heaven and you know, the waved shoulder and the burnt offering. And all of eschatology, right, is about the banquet feast. It's about food, but it's all couched in this grand marriage reality, too. The first Adam, it's not good for him to be without the first Eve. The, the two shall become one flesh, and that's the mystery sign embedded in creation. It's for all people. The second Adam, it's not good for him to be alone. He comes seeking and saying, I find my fullness in the new Eve, right? By the way, we're all participating there. So don't, don't hear that as, as though, like, well, if I'm you know, called never to be marriage, I, married, I guess this doesn't apply to me. Everyone, <laughs> Eve's the mother of all living. We're all participants in that. Whether we're celibates or we're, we're in human marriages, we're all children of this marriage. We're all members of this marriage. We're all participating in it. All of this, all of reality is about, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be one flesh with his wife. And for this reason, the son shall leave his father and become one flesh with his bride. Right? And she will be the mother of all who are fully alive in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Husbands, I'll pick up in, man, I wish we had, wish we had way more time. Time. Because I know this, we, we do horrible things to this text. We politicize it and do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. We won't get to that right now. For the husband's the head of the wife, not this, the cafe He's the source, right? And the first Adam went into a deep sleep and from his side, right? Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. And the second Adam too went into a deep sleep and from his side, right? So that's what we're doing. We're pouring wine into the, into the carafes, right? The new Eve. Her, her very ontologies are rooted in, um, right in the side. But, but here, headship and kephale means source, right? The son is sourced in as the eternally begotten. The father wishes his head to raise the son and give him a name above every name. The son is the source of all humanity. <laughs> he wishes to take humanity, right? Make them radiant here. We're talking about the husband's the source of the wife. What it looks like to, to cafe there is to care for, to nourish, right? And it all, by the way, comes under cruciformity. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself correctly because in the economy of God, love is always other-directed, right? Love that's only self-reflexive is actually unholy. It's nothing of the sort. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Think about Acts 9. Saul's persecuting the church. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
no one ever hated their own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just like we have countless times already today, all of us. <clears throat> but now, it's not as if no one has ever hated their own flesh, right? I mean, there's Gerizine demoniacs. People hurt themselves. People cut themselves. People, people set themselves up for failure and sabotage themselves all the time. All the time. It's not saying this never happens. It's saying that's a mark of insanus, unwellness, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, be, to, be, to be well and, and set within your rights is to actually care for your body is that disjunction, right, where the, the self turned upon the self and you know how close that is, right? Self-love and self-hatred are real close together. <laughs> they're, not, they're not mutually exclusive. They're real close together. As, as you love in this way, you learn to care for the other as a dimension of caring for your body, as Christ does the church, bodied realities, right? <clears throat> because we're members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So Paul goes right to Genesis 2. Just so you, just food for thought, Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3, sin and fall. God doesn't say, now that they're sinful and fallen, I guess I made all things through and for Jesus Christ. I guess I might as well reveal him now. I wasn't going to. Not at all the case. He just won't relent at anything. Even, even when we break the world, he says, I will do, the zeal of the Lord will see this through. It's going to take my broken body. So be it. <clears throat> this mystery is profound. I guess so. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So right, Paul's not giving us, here are some practical tips for human marriage. It is that, but he's saying human marriage lives under the, the, the calibration, you know, the correction and expansion, the sanctification of this grand marriage because to whatever degree human marriage is gonna be authentic, it's gonna participate there in that marriage. And it's gonna look like that one. But you see the point. <clears throat> the, closest, the closest thing we have in a, on a merely human plane to the intimacy that God wants to have with us is sex. Gift of God, rightly stored it. It's, it's supposed to actually teach us, informed by the gospel, what it, what it means that God wants to be with us. And it, too, is sacramental. It, go, it goes, right? It doesn't go on into eternity. But informed by the gospel, it's supposed to tell us this is how close God wants to be with us. Look at 1 Corinthians, if you will, 6. Corinthians. Wouldn't it be, you know, the better a thing is, the more open it can be to, to harm, right? So sex, a great gift of God. People get hurt there, right? <laughs> If, it, if, it, if it's informed by the gospel, it tells us who God wishes to be to us when it's not. It doesn't make you feel safe and loved. It makes you feel anything but that. Let's just say that, right? Anything but that. Um, because it's supposed to be a vehicle of the gospel. Really, we need to re just lament over things like this, don't we? It's just so, it's so, so, so sad. So sad. Yes. 
Now you've overstimulated me now. So much I want to say. I'm not going. Um, <clears throat> First Corinthians 6. I just want you to see this, how amazing it is. And, and by the way, the realism of Paul, the pastoral realism. You know what the issue is. An incestuous relationship going on. Um, <clears throat> I'll just pick up on verse 15. No, I won't. No, I won't. All things are lawful for me. I'll pick up in verse 12. But not all things are helpful. All things are, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual porneia, is the word there. Immorality is a, a tough translation because we usually think, we think about rules there. It's actually, it's about holiness code. Holiness is different than mere morality, to be sure. <clears throat> but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and also will raise us up by his power. Listen to this realism. This is how Paul deals with sexual pornea. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's no Gnosticism there. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul is likening here sex, holy or unholy, what it's able to do, um, both couched in real bodily realities, and he's rooting them right in the gospel. You can't do this with your body because don't you know that your body belongs to the Lord, that he is in you and you are in him. He's not saying don't do this really with your bodies because it's as if your body belongs to Jesus, but it doesn't. That's the whole point, right? It's that, this as ifness that, that'll get us to do just that. <clears throat> My point here, when we talk about being in Jesus Christ, we're not talking about just um, an emotional connection. I'm in love with Jesus. That's wonderful. And, and real and good. Um, I want to do his will and obey him. It's not, not like a missional union. It's not just a legal union, although the gospel deals with that too. All of those things are real, but they're all secondary, or, or, or you might say derivative of. We're talking about real embodied realities here. Right? We, have, we have been actually included, incorporated into Jesus Christ. <clears throat> This union is spiritual. Now, again, you know how we, we talk sometimes, maybe, maybe not us, but the way our world talks and even broader Christian communities, spiritual means, shh, not real, right? It's, it's spiritual, you know, that means. Um, when, when we say that, we mean really real, right? This union is real um, and it's rooted in and carried out by the mission of the Spirit in our lives. Look at Romans. I just want to do tons of, tons of scripture today. Romans 8. <clears throat> it's a really cool passage. Um, verse 9. One verse, three uses of Spirit, three different ways that the Spirit's used in one verse. You, however, you, us, 
are not in the flesh. We're in the body, that's for sure. We're in the soma. We're not in the sarks. But you're in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What he does there, the spirit who is God, the spirit who proceeds from God the Father, the spirit who is the spirit of Jesus Christ. <laughs> cool stuff. So that he can go right to, in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, we've been talking about the spirit. The spirit is the power and presence of Jesus Christ in us. In other words, you guys, this, not the spirit isn't a consolation prize. Right? God's not playing um, a relay race with us. The Father's active in the Old Testament. The Son comes at the, at the, at the ascension. He leaves. He, he becomes Lord Emeritus. He passes the baton. The Spirit comes in the absence of Jesus Christ to be a consoler because Jesus is far from us. <clears throat> the Spirit brings the fullness of Jesus Christ in, in his indwelling realities. If Christ is in you, although your body is dead and dying because of sin, the Spirit is life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. <clears throat> Union with Christ as brought about to, in its fullness by the spirit actually coming and moving in the economy of God, Christ with us, which you see with his apostles, to Christ in us, the promise of the new covenant. It's, it's the way temple moves through scripture, right? Um, the temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament, Jesus is temple. We are temples, right? Where is that? The place where God and, God and humanity meet, right? <clears throat> Look at John 14. I'm still talking about spirit here, brought, up, brought around by the spirit. verse 16. And I'll ask my father and he will give you another paraclete, another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, talking to the apostles, for he dwells with you. He will be in you. She's not saying the spirit. You've never met the spirit. They're people of faith. You come to faith by the power of the spirit. It's not some naturalistic thing you, you know, scare up within yourself. You're already acquainted with the Spirit. The Spirit's going to be near to you still, and so will I, says our Lord. I'll be, I'll be in you. Look at the next thing he says. I won't leave you orphans. Odd. Jesus never claims to be our Father, and in fact isn't. Don't worry. I won't leave you orphans. To be Christless is to be fatherless, right? It's precisely First John picks this up. He who has the Son has the Father. He who has not the Son has not the Father. Don't worry. I'm not going to be distant and inaccessible so as to leave you orphans. Precisely what it means for you to, to have my Father <clears throat> is to have me. I will come to you. In a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. Resurrection, Pentecost realities. You will live. In that day you will know not, you will know, gnosko, yada, and, and, and Adam knew Eve. 
And that day you will know intimate firsthand experiential knowledge. You will know this, that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. It will be an existential reality as the Spirit's ministry. Think about God eternally, right? Who has the Spirit been? He has been the bond of fellowship between the eternal lover and the eternally beloved, right? Who is the Spirit now as God opens up his triune life to us to save us? Well, who he's always been. <laughs> so who is he? He's that one who takes us and binds us and brings us into the sphere of God's triune blessedness. And he says, when the Spirit does that, and when I penetrate your very being in this way, this is what you're going to know, that I'm in the Father. How would we know that? Because that's where you'll be. <laughs> because you'll be participating in my life with the Father. And you'll know that I am in him, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's what, that's what the Spirit's ministry is. So even when you, when you think about things like, you know, the fruits of the Spirit are love and joy and peace, it's not... This is what the, the Spirit works in you in Jesus' absence, or this is what the Spirit wants you to work on. My peace I give to you. Who says that? Jesus. My joy I give to you. The love with which the Father loved me from before the foundations of the earth, I share with you. The fruits of the Spirit is the life of Jesus Christ welling up in us. <laughs> him forming himself in us and us being conformed to him. All right? The Spirit doesn't have a body. Therefore, the Spirit cannot sanctify your body. Christ has a body. The Spirit sanctifies us in our bodies by bringing the embodied reality of Jesus Christ into our bodies. Has to be the case. If we don't get that, then we actually use Christian theology to become Gnostics. How are you doing spiritually? I, you get it. I'm not trying to be crusty, but you get it. That means how are you doing, <laughs> right? Your body has a lot to do with how you're doing, a whole lot to do. First John 4, let's just, gosh, I love First John. By this, I'm in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he gave us his spirit. Union with Christ is brought, is brought into its realization by the spirit's indwelling ministry, which is and who is the power and presence of Jesus Christ in us. We must abide in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing, right? I want you, do you, do you guys see every time there's an in us, I will be in you, there's always, there's no exception in you and me. The Father's in me, and I'm in him. You see how important, this is, this is why this is so important. The Father is in me. Let's, let's do another one, let's do Christ. Um, I am in you, and you are in me. Why that's so important is I am in you, and you are in me. Where is he? at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> Where are you? Not like this, but really. Right? Really. I go to make a place for you. It's the Upper Room Discourse. Um, I go to make a place for you so that where I am, you will be. I go to make a living way of access to the Father in my body to, to 
bring my life and your life right into his bosom. So there's nothing vague or nebulous about life in the spirit or, or the, like we use it in our culture, spiritual. Spiritual can mean anything, right? Dancing naked in the moonlight, hugging tree, whatever. It can mean anything because it has no Lord. It has no, it has no present Christ. Spiritual here is that which is wrought by and brought about by the Spirit, who is the Lord, the giver of life, and the bearer of Jesus Christ. Quick question. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a lovely thing to, to talk about. Um, the Spirit is always the one who brings the Word to bear. So you know, the Word of the Lord came to the prophets. It's just not like an utterance of God, right? It's the mediator who, who is yet to come into his fullness, but, it, but it's him. So Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. Where does that start? As soon as God's life turns out, outward in creation all things are made by him and through him and for him he is the very self-expression of the father the word resounding in the very bosom of the father for eternity as god's life turns outward god does all things triunally but the word there is the the one to whom all the prophets bear witness and comes into its fullness This union incorporates us into the father-son relationship. Envelopes us in the very bosom of the father. Gives us a share in the most real personal union that ever was and ever could be. The way the father is with the son. Surely this is too good to be true. That's, Allison, that's one of the big reasons, right? It's a really good thing to think about how, how we are, um, we're real impatient. Mm -hmm. And we become, the, the, more, the more savvy we get in certain elements of our lives, like technologically, for instance, the more impatient we get with things we can't manipulate because we manipulate everything all the time. Well, we can't manipulate God. And so when we start talking about this, we start to say, well, that seems pretty abstract and impractical. It's, it's, it's the most non-abstract thing you could ever talk about. There's nothing abstract about who God is. Um, there's nothing abstract about um, the embodied Jesus Christ in the bosom of the Father. It's, it's precisely the other way around. But, but, it, but it's real tough for us to, to get out of saying, man, don't take me out of my depths. Give it to me in you know, 140 characters, 20 seconds, bite size. There's nothing more practical than this. There's nothing more pastoral than this. Because the averse is to live in, live in a world that isn't real without knowledge of God. There's nothing practical or pastoral about that. Um, upper room discourse. Jesus 
is incorporating us into God's life. I'll pick up on verse 20. I do not wish for those only. I do not ask for those only, right? The, the apostles, the disciples in his immediate context. But for those who will believe in me through their word. For Gregory House, 2020, February. That they may be one. And we'd ask, what is, what, is the, what is the basis of our oneness, the, one, the church that's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic? What's the basis of this? So that they'll all vote the same way in November. They'll all like the same music and dress the same. No. That they'll be one in this way. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I, Father, am in you, that they also may be in, what's the pronoun? Us. Jesus Christ doesn't come to us um, abstracted from the Father, but is sent by the Father so that the Father can come near to us. To, to be possessed of Jesus Christ is to be possessed of Jesus Christ in the ministry of the Spirit and the presence of the Father, the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily right, brings the life of God to bear upon us. So that the world will know that you sent me, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, complete, full, whole, that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. The Father loves the Son and wishes to be forever one with him. How does, how does, how does God love us in Jesus Christ? How does the Father love us in Jesus Christ to make us one? Dang. You guys can stop me again anytime. I just want you to see. I, I want you to see this. It's just everywhere, everywhere in Scripture. First Thess. It's just an apostolic meeting. But 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 watch with what ease Paul says this. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. Where, what what's your locale? Well, Thessalonica in one sense, in the bosom of God the Father. That's where you exist. Because you're in Jesus Christ. In First John, First John two, I'll pick up in twenty four. Okay, I will in a minute. But look at the first three verses of First John. This is what it means that the church is apostolic. Remember, when, remember when Jesus in the upper room discourse says, "The Spirit will come; He'll bear witness to me, and you'll bear witness to me too, because you've been with me from the beginning." Look at what it means, apostolic community. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. It's not as if he's incarnate. Concerning the word of life. The life was manifest. We've seen it, testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship, koinonia, with us, apostolic community, because indeed our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
you have to come into this ap- the son who never wishes to be without the apostles and us and him that's the apostolic koinonia fellowship come into this sphere of blessedness where we have been incorporated into the in, into the bosom of the father and jesus christ right? don't go out from us there's no life there stay here so then he picks up here in verse 24 I'll pick up in verse 23, why not? No one who denies the Son as the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. John's listened well. He was in the upper room, right? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life high priestly prayer and this is eternal life that you yada that you know the father and the one whom he has sent not this is not that you know that you enter into right that you enter into the reality of of this whenever i talk about stuff like this i'm always a little bit I'm frustrated in the sense that I think, um, what if we, what if, what if we talked like that? What if we just committed to talking about the realities of the gospel like that? Right. Um, what's happening in evangelism in the in the in the presence of Jesus Christ and our co-missioning with Him? Apart from Him, we can do nothing. I will be with. I will abide with you always. Right now, go forth. I'm going into retirement now. Go project your religious fantasy upon the world in my absence. No way. I'll be with you. What, what, if, what, if, what if the gospel was um, by the lordly permission of Jesus Christ, I offer you Jesus Christ, right? Or the life of the church is not like that. Come into the sphere of God's absence, the historical society of Jesus, where we think, where we think noble things about him. Come where God wills to be known. He says, I will meet you. I'll give you my flesh and blood for the life of the world. And I'll make, I'll make you living members of one another. This union is mystical. What we should not mean there is um, that which you, know, you, you can't say anything about because it's nebulous or that which, that which causes you to shut your mouth and never say anything. We're not, we're not, we don't mean that. This is mystical in the sense that it's deep, profound mystery. It's, it's the mystery embedded in, in the garden. The two shall become one flesh. Now revealed to us, we can, we can say a whole bunch of things and true things and real things, but even as we do, we can never, we can never get to the, we can never plumb the depths or span the breadth of what we're talking about. Now or forever, by the way. I mean forever, not just in this life, but the one to come. You're never gonna plumb the depths of this. You're never gonna say, Do you remember when God used to be so exciting? Now he's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. I mean, we've seen all this, right? Um, forever, right? <laughs> we'll, never, we'll never exhaust. Not different than this, not contradictory to this, but even now we're just, just saying true things and living into true things about which will forever be opened up to us. We might say it like this, Jesus is the life of the world. He gives life to all things. He gives understanding to all things. But he never surrenders his mystery. 
he never he never becomes a plaything. He never becomes you know he's always the Aslan who's you know good but not safe, right? You can't domesticate God. You can't um, you can't manage God. Not that we ever want to, but we desperately want to. He and his goodness will never let us do that. Paul says here to the Colossians, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. By the way, the word of God, Paul, who was on the lips of Isaiah, right? To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the saints. So mystery in scripture is always revealed. Mystery is always about revelation. To them, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the two shall become one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, bind himself to his bride, and the two will become one flesh. That's the mystery that's being unpacked. <laughs> What is the full manifestation of that mystery? Jesus Christ in us. The hope of glory. God wishes to bind us to himself in the incarnate son. What do you guys want to say? Just simple is com complex in a way, but just ele elegant, right? Just beautiful. Um, it, I don't think that I don't think that this will allow us, as you see with the apostles, it won't allow us to talk about God as a concept. So as you know, um, by the way, the first time in Scripture that God's talked about like that is in the Garden. God made us for dialogue. The first time it's like, hey, didn't God, you know that God who's a fly on the wall at best, but you know the God who's not actually here, who's in whose presence we are not. Um, didn't that God say? That's the first time you see that. And so we never want to be the type of people who, who banter about ideas and concepts about God. So at best, we'll, well, not at best, but often we'll say, like, hmm, that's really interesting. Now let's talk about something that's real. Let's go get lunch. <laughs> right? God won't let us do that. And it, and it changes everything, right, to just turn that dynamic a little bit and say, um, Jesus Christ has loved you to hell and back, bone of, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and he wills to be one with you, to raise you up, to make you a trophy of, of his grace, to fix your broken heart and fix it straight and, and bend, bend, you, bend you back to the Father that you might live into the fullness of your humanity forever. Um, in, the, in the true sense of the term, right, I'm not being crass, to love the hell right out of you, right, to do that. That, now, you can still say to that, well, that doesn't sound very good to me. You can still say that, but man, it takes a lot more, doesn't it? <laughs> it takes a lot more. Um, 
can I just go as far as we have? I mean, you can, you can read the notes. We're, we're already, we're, we've already talked a lot about how this changes. This means everything in terms of then what is the church? The church is the body of Jesus, right? The church isn't a social organization. It has that, it has that dimension for sure, but that's not the thing. Um, the church isn't a social club. The, the, church isn't, the church doesn't exist to do any of those things first and foremost. The church is the body of Jesus Christ present and embedded in the world so that when the world says, where can I encounter Jesus Christ? We never say, oh, you can't. You were born 2,000 years too late. You can come and think about him with us. We memorialize him all the time. You can come do that with us. That's not very good. Um, he is present and he's, 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 he is present to give you his life-giving flesh and blood. And by the way, he speaks all the time, right? And he's, and he's teaching his sheep how to hear his voice. It changes all of that. What is, what is preaching in the life of the church? It's Jesus Christ taking the, the ministry of the apostolic prophetic ministry and actually, as the word is proclaimed, who is, who is to be heard? It's Jesus. So when you guys preach today, preach with boldness. Like, thus saith the word, right? Thus, thus saith the Lord. Um, maybe I'll, 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 I'll say this. Some of, some of what happened in the Reformation um, it, as early as like say 1529, big colloquy called Marburg, um, you, you were already seeing different, different realms of the Reformation. They got together and said we really need to consolidate this movement. And they were able to do it real easy except for on one thing. Is Jesus Christ present in the Lord's Supper? <laughs> so Luther famously, you know, this is my body. What else, what else do we need to say? Done. You know, someone like Zwingli would say, well, Jesus says he's a door, too. I mean, should we, does he have knobs and hinges and handles? And, um, is is purely figurative. But what that came down to, to mean, and it was all about John 6, by the way, the reading of John 6. Luther said, doesn't, it, doesn't what it means to be saved, to have a living encounter with Jesus Christ, a real flesh and blood encounter? And Swingley said, no. So, you know, don't we encounter the Lord at the Lord's table? Swingley said, nope. We, we, we think about him as he's signified only. We think about him as he's not there. Luther's point was, where then have you ever had, and if you don't have an encounter there, then where? Swingley said, nowhere. And Luther famously says, we're of a different spirit. <laughs> um, people like Calvin, would, people like Cranmer, um, Anglican, uh, English, English church, all Luther in this way. All of them Luther, right? That's what, one of the things that makes us Catholic and great tradition people. Um, but it comes into um, some forms of Protestantism um, that, that, that we do not have. Um, that, that all the gospel is up here and all the gospel's activistic, but none of it's participatory. Participation is not a, is not a legitimate category of gospel. Um, that changes a lot, eh? What I wanna do when I come back is um, now start to work through in light of this. Like what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? What does it mean to be progressively from one degree of glory to the next made holy? Um, what, is, what does it mean 
to be sons and daughters of God, adoption, right? Adoption never means it's as if you're a child. You know, like if you, if you have two kids, like this is my real kid and this is my kid. Adoption tells you how you came to be that, right? So when we talk about, you know, we're adopted, it doesn't mean, you know, God, God the Father begrudgingly accepts us in, in, the, in the, the, the real son that he really loves. It actually means that we're real sons and, sons and daughters as Jesus Christ has opened up that which is most precious to him, who he is in the Father, and said, I'm not, cl- I'm not clutching to this. I actually want to share which, which is best to me. I want to bring you into it and give you a share in it. You're truly, by adoption, right? By grace, you're truly sons and daughters of, of, of the Father with me and all that means, and that means a lot. So we'll explore that. You guys can look at the rest of this because I don't want to presume upon your break. Do you want to say anything else, though? That's good. So Just remember the word of God. As it was here about like that one commentator, not, not a Christian who was studying Christianity, that was like, this is the thing you guys should be talking about. God became a person and like came to earth. Like, why aren't you saying I know exactly that? what you're Why aren't you saying that? And I'm thinking about that throughout this whole, you're saying, what if we really got this embodied aspect? And what if, you know, we, it influenced our, our worship? That's exactly and, right. And we still plenty of people that would feel estranged from it, for sure. But, but for the right reasons. But who would hear it? So, you yeah. know, like, and think, this is different. You know, A, that was uh, Stuart, Tom Holland, that a book to me. It's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's not a believer. He says, if I, if I actually believed in Jesus, I wouldn't be taught, what, what, what are you doing? Right? Just, you're squandering a mission here. Yeah. Um, Jesus is, we, we say, like, Jesus is the master teacher, right? If Jesus, if Jesus was a college prof, his, his evals would be horrible. He'd be, every semester, his dean would say, Jesus, we need to talk, right? Look at his encounters all the time. Look at John 6. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Hey, I want to have an intellectual joust with you. The first thing Jesus says is, you know, if you don't, Unless you're born from above by the Spirit, you can't even perceive the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. Nicodemus is like, and we're talking about what? That's not what I asked. (laughs) That's not what I asked at all. He's on his heels in a second. Hey, good teacher. Who's good but God? Our Lord does that all the time. He's getting at what, what so lies, you know, right below the surface, what people are really getting at. But even there, right, the, the rich young ruler, he walks away sad. He's one of the few people in the Gospels he walks away sad. But it's just wonderful, just a, just a little kind of side note there. And it says, and Jesus looking at him, he loved him. He loved him. He sees him and he loves him. But, and he will allow you to walk away sad from him. So he's, he's, what he's not doing is he's not acting like a love-starved, you know, little lap dog sitting in the corner of the room just... Please, you know what I mean? 
our Lord will actually, he's, he, John 6, he's just, he's drilling in. Are you going to leave too? He'll let you do that. But he's saying true things. If you're going to leave, at least leave for the right reasons. So the, even there, the love of God, just, it's, there's, a, there's a strength and a, there's a, a, a love, a gentle forcefulness about the love of God that's not vapid. And so if we don't get that, then what we end up, we talk about the love of God to the world, and the world's like, uh-huh, right. Because it's feckless, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think we, we have that here. And then so if you're going to leave, leave. But leave for the right reasons, at least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the way, it's t- where else would you go? Where else would you go? 